0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's a good morning to everybody out there. David McLean here on Published or Not. You're on 3CR. Now, my book today is like a Sarah Lee cake. It's multi layered. It's a biography about Fergus Hume. It's about his novel The Mystery of a Handsome Cab. It's about marvellous Melbourne, about the publishing industry, insane asylums, theatre and e and even the ever changing homosexual landscape. It's entitled Blockbuster by Fergus Hume, and the mystery of the handsome cab and the author is Lucy Sussex. So Lucy, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, thank you. Now let's set the backdrop a little. Who is Fergus Hume and what is the mystery of a handsome cab?
0: Okay, Fergus Hume was a Dunedin lawyer. He was Scots born and his father ran the um, madhouse in Dunedin. So he grew up in the ma- literally, literally in the madhouse. And they had theatre in the madhouse as part of what was called moral ma- moral management, which was therapeutic treatment, um, you know, uh, treating people humanely. So he got the theatre bug from that and wanted to be a dramatist. And he was – but his father um, said, who was very canny Scott, said, well, you've got to get a law degree first before you can enter onto this, you know, this literature stuff. So he did. Um, and he, having done that, he um, managed to interest a couple of Engl- t- touring English p- um, theatre companies in producing his work. So he thought, okay, next step is Melbourne because it was, after Dunedin was the richest city in, in New Zealand at that time, richest and largest. And this was the 1880s. But Melbourne was even bigger. You know, Melbourne was an extremely rich city on gold money. Yes. So he went to Melbourne. Which is the next step step on his world domination
1: uh, and it did become a sort of world domination, but let's not get there first. The mystery of a hansom cab, what is it?
0: It was his first novel, and it is about Melbourne in eighteen eighty five and it is about what happens when a um body is found in a hansom cab, murdered, and the police and various interested parties have to try and work out who done it. Um, and so it eventually went on, um, so Fergus, and this book from its small beginnings in Melbourne, it became the biggest selling detective novel of the 1800s and effectively created the market for Colin Doyle and Sherlock Holmes.
1: But Fergus didn't actually make that much money out of it?
0: Um, poor man. He, uh, sold his copyright for 50 pounds, which actually in those days was quite a lot of money, because though it had been published in Melbourne and a consortium was being formed to publish it in England, he, poor man, didn't think that it would be a success in England he th- and he still wanted to be a dramatist first. Um, and in fact, the reason he wrote The Handsome Cab was that he couldn't get anywhere with Melbourne um, theatre managers and J.C. Williamson you know, just ignored him. So he thought, well, I'll draw attention to myself by writing a novel. And what so he goes down to the um booksellers and says what's selling and they said, Oh yes, murder mysteries by this French bloke, Gaborio So he buys ten Gaborio mysteries. Gaborio I might add by this stage is dead. Um and um so really can't cash in on any more on, on his success and so Fergus reads them all and he's been writing plays, so he's good at dialogue, he's a lawyer, so he knows all about the law. And he cottons on, as Gaborio did, that the setting is an an important place of character.
1: Well, that gives us a perfect opportunity to look at Melbourne in that time. So, uh, from your book... In Hume's time, Lonsdale Street was the red-light district of Melbourne Town. It would become even more infamous as the possible hiding place of the colonial parliament's mace stolen in 1891. Little Lon, as Little Lonsdale Street was known, was even worse, an unsewered and unlit slum. Now it rises high with upmarket apartment buildings. Few signs remain of its desperate past, though the 2002 Castledon Place archaeological excavation Unearthed rich detritus, century old sin, bottles, crockery, coins, and rarest of all, the remains of imported pessaries, Victorian contraceptives. Besides these artifacts, exist a literary record, the seediest scenes of Hume's novel. What was Melbourne like in that time? Oh,
0: it was, and it had, there was an insane amount of money floating around. Um, the gold rushes had then developed into a massive boom and you it, it effectively had the conditions for um, a subprime crisis developing but there was buildings going up everywhere, land was the rate, the cost of, of land was rising in the CBD, so were the buildings. There was the Parliament House, there were um, extraordinary, they bo- the talk about the boom time ar- architecture, very ornate very moneyed, what's left of it um, so it was architecturally beautiful and there was money everywhere but it was built on sand because um, so many people had like the main character of the book, Mark Frettleby, had come from England and had a dubious past which might be unencountered un- any- um, arrived most inconveniently on the next boat from England um, but it was a huge book buying public as well very um, there was um, Cole's Cole's book arcade there was something like 120 different bookshops in Melbourne at the time or even if they were railway kiosks and people were reading frantically because you didn't have the TV you didn't have the internet you could there was the theater
1: well this is it this is what I'm trying to get at because this was a ferment for theater for Publishing for authors you've got uh, Marcus Clark at yep. that time uh, and a and a theater industry which was the television of its day and Fergus Hume wanted to take advantage of that
0: you even had a daily what's on guide to the theater being being published called Launette. um and yeah you know, people were consuming the theater in huge amounts and it wasn't but it was in Berg Street and it You go across a couple of streets across and you've got slums and opium dens and then at the end of the street you've got the... um You've got the Houses of Parliament and... Another the, slum, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Some things don't change. <laughs> the
1: language of the Parliament sort of is similar to that of the slums, but sorry, I've interrupted.
0: No, no, that's fine. Um, so it was a city that was incredibly vibrant and very moneyed and moving very quickly. Um, Tom Roberts did a picture down Burke Street um, called Allegro Con, Con Brio, which means rot, play quickly um, with... With was sparkling, and that was what Melbourne was like. It was a very sparkling city. It was really fun to be in, and um, and Fergus Hume, who was an outsider from Dunedin, basically nailed it. He made the city a character in the book, and so he describes um, the block. He describes Burke Street and the theatre, and he goes off to St Kilda, and the victim is killed on the way to St Kilda in a hansom cab. So, he creates an almost unsurpassed picture of what Melbourne was like at the time.
1: I'm just wondering what the lit, uh, what what the theatre scene was like. I mean, Fergus Hume was trying to write plays or was writing mm. plays, but we don't really have them being reproduced or done again. What were the what was the quality of the theatre of its day? What sort of plays were taking place? What sort of stories were in these plays?
0: Well, you got stu- you got there's a lot of pantomime at Christmas, Panto was huge, Um, there was a lot of imports um, from English productions and in fact in one of Fergus Hume's novels he he has a colonial theatre manager saying, oh well we can't put on colonial stuff because colonial stuff doesn't, colonial brains don't pay, to which the hero responds, well you don't give them a chance, do you? Um, There was a fair amount of sort of crime there was a degree of crime mystery although the theater couldn't really deal with the who done it um plot yet on stage because basically we, when a play got reviewed you got all the plot given you know, you got the entire plot given in the review so there was no suspense so it wasn't quite suited to the mouse trap um but there was new plays coming on every week. There were theatre companies passing through. It was incredibly busy. Um, and why didn't he make it as a dramatist in Melbourne? Possibly he was just too pushy too quickly because I think he had ability in that area and he'd already been picked up by, new Ze- by um, English companies in New Zealand. But... He was, in the meantime, working as a law clerk and networking furiously and trying to get his work on the stage but as as I said before, he just couldn't just couldn't get them interested partly anyway, there was a sense that yes, partly it was because he was a colonial
1: right well, let's get on to this Hume character then Hume was an author of whose life little can be directly detected from his novels. His secrets are well hidden, yet sometimes it is possible to perceive elusive games in The Piccadilly Puzzle, his fifth novel. uh, Hume introduces a young man living in London's Bohemian Quarter who writes for a scandal sheet like Melbourne's Table Talk, for which Hume worked briefly. So far, so semi-autobiographical, but unlike his hero, Hume was never suspected of murder. Rather, he's guilty of a pun in which he shows off his knowledge of Latin. So he's used, um, you've quoted from uh, the Piccadilly puzzle, where as an author he is unroofing uh, people's houses and there's a detective and then you go into the etymology of the word detective. Um, at this stage, it's reading a bit like The Surgeon of Crowthorne, I don't know if you've come up yes, across that book, which is looking at the Oxford English Dictionary and some of the characters behind it. Again, elusive characters who we're trying to get hold of. How difficult was it to get? get hold of Hume, so to speak. What record is there of him?
0: There's um, no descendants, um, only distant family members surviving, although what they have to say about him is quite is quite fascinating. I'll get to that later when we start talking about reincarnation.
1: We're going to talk about reincarnation, are we? Oh, yes. Oh, good. Tell me, well, let me know when you want to touch on that. But I'm getting onto the challenge of, of getting into... Well, getting in touch with him, now we're getting into reincarnation, because you've used his novels as a source. Uh, what documentary evidence is left behind of him?
0: No diaries, no, hardly any letters. Um, hardly his his most important publishers, their archives haven't survived. The Handsome Cab Publishing Company, which published him in England, they went bankrupt. Um, so you, there are some archives in New Zealand, but mostly it was able... You could get at him through the interviews he did and which are accessible via digitising of newspapers. So um, Troven Australia and Papers Past in New Zealand and the Gale newspaper projects um, internationally, he did a fair amount of interviews and he was quite candid in in these interviews. And from that you get a sense of how much on the make he was and how desperate he was to make it. But... um, Getting a sense of what he was is harder. There's a little hints in the, there's little hints in the book. He gives a tribute to his father in the madhouse as to how good a, a madhouse administrator and how kind his father was. but that's disguised. You really have to delve deep um and does he put himself in his books? Well, that's very hard to say um certainly in, in when he was in Dunedin, he was known as a masher, which is what they called a dandy and he was fantastically well-dressed. And MASH has also had an effect, uh, um, a rather affected way of speech. So if we're looking at, say, the dramatised version of The Handsome Cab, but which was appeared on the ABC a couple of years ago, um, the character who's closest to Hume is actually Felix Rolleston, who's a young journalist who's a MASHER, who's a dandy, um, speaks um and is very ambitious and eventually ends up an MP. But in that dramatisation, the um, I interviewed the screenwriter Glenn Dolman and they read Felix as being very camp and that's an aspect of him which I had to look into, you know, was um, was he gay in that in the nineteenth century understanding of the word which was not necessarily what you um, at, at what you were but it was something you did because this was just before the, Wild, the Oscar Wilde trials.
1: Right. But you've got then reference to uh, someone called Beck uh, which adds to this notion of was he gay? Would you like to go down that path?
0: Um, Phil Beck was um, Hume's friend. He was an English actor. Um, very popular. Came out to Australia for his health and almost immediately was snapped up with um, J.C. Williamson and was performing all over the place. He and Hume actually wrote Hume's second novel, um, a a dramatisation of his second novel, Madame Midas, together, which Beck recast as a star vehicle for him, for villains. Beck seems to have... um, Got Hume out of financial trouble just before the Handsome Cab was published, and Hume was very ill at this at time. And so, despite being a lawyer, he signed an agreement in which he was, in which, he thanks, he would share profits and have a literary partnership with Beck, um, which he then had to pay a lot of money to get out of. Subsequently, um, Beck. There's some evidence that they might have been more than friends. Um, when Hume gets to England, a successful riding on the rat bike on the um, Handsome Cab success, um, he and Beck fall out. And Beck comes back to Australia and eventually commits suicide. Um, that's one aspect. You know, Why did Beck commit suicide? Just because Hume threw him over? Um, but there was another incident where... A young man called Gordon Lawrence. Now, the the Melbourne um, exhibition of 1888. Um, A young Gordon Lawrence is most famous for having been arrested for soliciting in drag in the middle of the of the um, exhibition, um, for which he was promptly arrested and um, had up and eventually went to Pentridge, Um, and for indecent you know, in decent conduct.
1: But there's also a suggestion there that part of this involvement in theatre was uh, an opportunity to be able to dress up in drag and be accepted for it. There's one suggestion. You oh,
0: might. you could get away with it perfectly well in the theatre because you had the pantomime dame and the principal boy so that so men could dress as women and women could dress as men. But when he got out onto the streets, then it became... It a different story. Yeah. But eh? um, just to finish up, Hume in Sydney gave Gordon Lawrence um, £20, which was rather a lot of money, and this was before he was arrested. Why did he give him that much money? I put this to Kerry Greenwood, seeing as that the evidence is that Gordon Lawrence was associated with the Sydney group of what you could only um, term rent boys. um, And... I put this to Kerry Greenwood, who, beside being a crime writer, was also a duty lawyer, and he said, "Well, it was." And her comment was, "Was either infatuation or blackmail? Um, twenty pounds was—you could buy a um, well. It's like a it was—it got twenty pounds could get you to England. Mm. It could have been running away money, um, but that Hume gave it to this rather dubious young man. You know what? What on earth was he doing?
1: But again, there's no certainty. We can only speculate." Uh, on, on a lot of these things
0: there's there's no certainty um, about him and I think that's actually what makes him so interesting it's really hard to pin him down and He's a man of mystery, just like his novel.
1: <laughs> the mystery of the man in the handsome cab. This is 3CR, published or not, and you're listening to Lucy Sussex talk about her book Blockbuster, which is about Fergus Hume and the mystery of a handsome cab. I've got to go down this path. Reincarnation, you've raised it.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, Hume, um, well, Dunedin was Scots Presbyterian, very much, because Scots, and he was brought up as a Presbyterian, and he... Plainly, did not have much time for the Presbyterians because the hansom cab begins at um, begins in Melbourne and outside Scott's Church where there's drunken people rolling around. And if there's one thing that you know the Presbyterians did appro- didn't approve of was it was, a, it was a drink. Um, and this is sort of you can see that he's actually having a having a snort a, a snicker there um, by doing such a thing, you know, by putting drunks um, outside Scott's Church. Um, but he came to Melbourne and he became intrigued by reincarnation, um, and so he became a Theosophist. Now, the Theosophil- Theosophical Society hadn't got to Melbourne yet; it's still very much part of the landscape with its, with its shop. And this was sort of like the New Age of the eighteenth of the nineteenth century, but it brought in a whole lot of of Eastern ideas, and reincarnation had been part. Hume had studied classics at school and so he knew about reincarnation, ideas of transmigration of souls. And he thought that he was, he had been reincarnated, which could mean, and there's something going on here. He talks about lovers being reincarnated through time, so perhaps he had a sense of being in the wrong body. Um, but if at the end of his life, he was... Um, Sharing a house with a man called Joseph Melville, who was a um, actually an alchemist in the sense that he was very good. In, this was in England. Who was very good at um, persuading rich industrialists that he could turn um, copper into gold. Oh my goodness! But <laughs> Melville was also believed in reincarnation. He believed he was the um, reincarnation of Roger Bacon. Um, which is logical if you're an alchemist, but Hume believed he was a French aristocrat who'd been guillotined in the revolution and he could still remember it.
1: This doesn't make it into the book, though. Oh, yes. i put, I, it. I oh, missed toward, that. Towards the end. Towards the end. Yeah. yeah. Like,
0: um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's so much in this book.
1: Well, there is so much in this book because, and we're going to run out of time, because not only is this about Fergus Hume, mm. it's about the publishing industry. It's sort of a biography of the book itself because it takes over. Would you like to go down that path? What happened to the book and it's because we get uh, Trishler and all these other people coming in in terms of this enterprise and business that takes off.
0: Hume couldn't get his book published by the Melbourne publishers. Um, Cole might have taken it on but he hadn't published any fiction and George Robertson, who was the biggest publisher at the time, um, thought it was just a bit you know, was a bit, just a bit too naughty with its seamy scenes. So he semi-self-published. He um, actually played the s- stock market to raise the money with Fred Trishler, who was a young man who'd actually worked in publishing in, in Melbourne and America. And Fred Trishler was brilliant at advertising. And Fred Trishler said to him, we can do an edition of 5,000 copies. Um, and let's time it for Melbourne Cup week because the city's population will be huge and sort of interstate visitors then and now. And I bet you anything they were selling it at the Melbourne Melbourne Cup. Um, And so it is said to have sold out the entire 5,000 print run within a couple of weeks with about 2,000 copies going in a couple of days.
1: Can you put that 5,000 in perspective as to what happens today?
0: Um, Yes. It was huge for the time, even now, a print run of 5,000. The publisher's very confident because the reading market's smaller. Um, you know, people have more distractions. But it certainly, whether I didn't believe that at first it had, and now I think it must have, because the next move was that they took it to England. Trishler formed the um, Handsome Cab Publishing Company with a couple of um, slightly dubious Melbourne capitalists, a bank manager. Um, and um, called George Nicholson Taylor and his wife Jessie who was a hard businesswoman and so they took the handsome cab to England and they formed a company this is when Hume sold his copyright he sold it to Jessie Taylor you know, keeping it in the wife's name as usual so they took it there and they had advertorials in every English newspaper that they could lay hands on it was being sold at WH Smith's And they sold something like thousands of copies each month to an eventual total of something like 300,000 to 500,000 copies. So it becomes the biggest-selling crime novel of the 1800s. It's pirated in America. It has all these translations. Um, And there's plays, there's musical songs, there's... um, Parodies. Translations, parodies. Yes, there's a parody book called "The Mystery of a Wheelbarrow." <laughs> yeah, and um, there's a copycat murder, or and um, it just becomes a media phenomenon.
1: But also impersonators. Uh, Fergus Hume's life is taken over by other people. And...
0: Yeah, people are impersonating him all over England. fraudulently. I mean, well, there were at least two of them. Two of them actively doing this, um, so that you know, when he gets to England, he's He's famous in all sorts of ways that he didn't intend. Um, And then there's three silent films, um, all lost. One of them was by the people who made The Kelly Gang in Australia. And another one in England in 1915 was by a man called um, Elliot Stannard, who went off to work, work with Hitchcock. So it's got this longevity.
1: It's, it, well, it's connected to so many facets of Melbourne's history, of the publishing industry, um, theatre. There are so many avenues, rabbit holes, you can go down with this book. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and is it any good? Is the, ha- is the Mystery of a Handsome Cab any good?
0: I reckon it stands up. I reckon you can read it now and you've got the picture of marvellous Melbourne But you've also got a murder mystery that's so deftly constructed, he wrote it twice, um, that you can't see what's coming. And to do that in the 1880s is very good.
1: I mean, you've got some of the reviews in the back of the book. A more clever, fascinating, or interesting little volume has seldom been issued in such a cheap form. Although it is a sensational romance, yet it is so blended with curious and interesting studies of human nature in all its phases that it bids fair to rank with the famous character tales of the immortal Charles Dickens. And this is from the York Herald in uh, 1888, whereas Carrie Greenwood says, "I absolutely hated it." <laughs>
0: I mean, there is no accounting, no accounting for tastes. I mean, yeah, even even now, but um, I think it stands up. It makes a, it makes a good show, and ultimately, for this book, it made a good story.
1: Well, it it also shows the importance of the setting, which uh, is, as you say, a character in itself, mm. um, which would have been of interest in its day for the people of Melbourne to know that they their city could be uh, a, a a character, or a subject, or a setting for a novel.
0: Then and now, Melbournians like to read about about themselves, and internationally, it had a degree of exoticism because here was this European city on the other end of the world, um, very very prosperous and and uh, but seedy and rich and all these interesting stuff.
1: Look, this is It, it is a marvellous tale. I had a lot of fun uh, reading the book, and um, I could make connections with things that have occurred. Uh, Or I've seen about Melbourne, things I didn't know about Melbourne, which was fascinating. There are whole other avenues you can go down. I'd be interested in exploring um, the theatre world back then. Are there any of the plays still existing or ever thought uh, people ever think of reproducing those sorts of plays? Would they l- oh, go on today?
0: Oh, you mean Hume's plays? Well,
1: Hume's plays or any plays of that era, would they stand up today?
0: Um, there was, a, uh, there was a, a 1960s version of the Handsome Cab that was appeared on Channel 7 and that was a dramatised performance. Um, there's the Telemovie. The actual plays of Hume, I haven't... Um, because... They'd survive in the Lord Chamberlain's office in England, and I haven't actually gone into that avenue because they had to submit a bit of a censorship. Haven't gone into that avenue yet, mainly because I had an, enough on my hands trying to get the story of the handsome cab down.
1: Well, the, the research is absolutely phenomenal uh, in all the avenues, and and the, the, basically the surrounding uh, evidence because you can't get hold of Hume directly. Uh, etc. So you've had to paint the portrait by looking at everything around him. It's it's phenomenal. You've got a, a launch coming up. Would you like to tell us about that?
0: Uh, yes, the 1st of July, Reader's Feast um, 6.15. Um, I'll be talking with Professor Stephen Knight who's a crime fiction historian and the person who got me to read The Handsome Cab in the first place and there will be Sparkling Burgundy at the launch.
1: Oh, Sparkling Burgundy. Wonderful. So how did you get into this book in the first place? How did you get into this subject?
0: I was working as a researcher for Stephen Knight's History of Australian Crime Fiction. And, I mean, I, I grew up in New... I'm, I'm from New Zealand. I'm from Christchurch. And I'd everybody knew of Naya Martin Christchurch because he lived there, but I'd never heard of the Handsome Cab. And even now, New Zealanders are saying to me, I'd never heard of this book. My God.
1: <laughs> so that's how you got started. Basically... We're unfortunately going to have to end the interview there, Lucy. It's been a wonderful sort of chat. The book is Blockbuster, Fergus Hume and the Mystery of a Handsome Cab. The author is Lucy Sussex, and it's from Text Publishing. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy, and we will bow out and let ruminations come in now.